Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephanie Fay, and I'll be sharing insights into how human brain architecture and biology are influenced by our unconscious fears and social behaviors. I'll also give you science-based strategies on how to skyrocket the brain's learning potential by focusing on the power of mindset, relationship, and psychological safety. Thanks for listening. This is episode six, and in this episode, we're going to explore the importance of sound. Helen Keller is quoted as saying that being blind made her feel disconnected from things, but being deaf made her feel disconnected from people. Sound is really, really important to us. So we're going to look at the evolution of that, the evolution of our hearing system, the changes that happen from reptiles to mammals, and that had to do with bones, middle ear bones and bone conduction. And we'll also look at the fact that the strongest predictor of reading ability is sound awareness, phoneme awareness, and a person's ability to distinguish between little units of sound. So we're going to see that the diagnosis of dyslexia is actually not valid according to decades of research now on the brain and that it has nothing to do with IQ or genetics, but reading challenges have to do with sound awareness. And reading is not a natural ability as we'll see, it's something that we are not born with. It's an artificial construct that was invented. And so even the way we teach reading doesn't necessarily help many people, especially if they have different issues with sound awareness and if they didn't come from an early, rich language environment. So we're going to take a look at all of that in this episode. Let's start with how important sound is for us. One thing to think about in terms of this is the fact that when it comes to our ability to perceive something called just noticeable differences, JNDs, they're little units that form something called octaves in terms of our ability to perceive different frequencies. When it comes to the visible light spectrum, humans can detect about 128 just noticeable differences, about one octave worth. But compare that to our ability to hear sound, and that number, 128, is compared to 5,000. So we have the ability to detect 5,000 just noticeable differences when it comes to hearing frequencies, which is about 10 octaves worth. So obviously sound is something very important. And if you think about our evolutionary history, it would make sense that sound is extremely important to us. Part of that is the fact that we did not have artificial light for a long part of our history. And so when the sun went down and it was dark, we would be depending on senses other than our eyes to keep us safe. And so that would require the other senses. So our ability to hear our surroundings and other people was an important ability to develop over our evolutionary history. So something else to think about when it comes to our evolutionary history is when we take a look at mammal versus reptile fossils. The way we can tell the difference between them is in the reptile fossil, the middle ear bones are still connected to the jaw. And in a mammalian fossil, the middle ear bones are no longer connected to the jawbone. And how this looks in terms of the evolutionary history of this is that because reptiles' middle ear bones were still connected to their jawbone, 
they didn't, and they still don't, hear the same way humans or mammals hear. Their ability to detect sound is coming more from vibration on their jawbone. It's coming through bone conduction. And that bone conduction with those very low base frequencies that are based on vibration and mainly based on vibration of movement and particularly movement on the ground is the sound of predator. And that low base vibration, that low base frequency, as it vibrates on the bone, that is what triggers the immobilization response in reptiles, and particularly ancient reptiles. Their main response was the immobilization or fiending death response. But what we see in terms of the hearing, in terms of these middle ear bones, is that one theory, evolutionary theory, is that as our brains grew in mass and size, it created pressure on the jaw and led to the breaking off of these middle ear bones. But what that created was a completely new form of communication, a system of communication where mammals were able to detect frequencies in a very specific band, a band of frequencies that is delivered through air. So airborne sounds have a specific frequency that is not about vibration on the ground. It's just the bumping together of air molecules that create sound waves. Mammals created a system, or mammals now had a system of communication that was using these airborne sounds, so these much higher frequencies. And this allowed them to communicate with each other without being detected by predators, which were the reptiles. So this was a really important development in the communication system of mammals because at this point, as mammals are now using sound, um, airborne sounds to communicate. And as we develop this communication system, this airborne communication system, we developed even more complex variation and variability in this. And so we started to modulate the sound waves that were traveling to and from each other in order to create more code and more complicated, complex systems of communication. And so in humans, it is the most complex, and it's where we get this concept of prosody, which is this modulation of these frequencies, and we create prosody. Other species do this also, but humans do it to the highest level with the highest amount of variation and complexity to it. We do this by changing how the air is pushed from our diaphragm and how it vibrates within our vocal folds and how we use our lips and our tongue and our mouth in order to change the how the air molecules bump against each other to create different sound waves. And this creates all these different frequencies. And so with humans, the frequency band that our voice is within is around 500 to 4,000 hertz. So humans can detect sounds between technically from about 50 to 10,000 hertz, but the human voice is within the 500 to 4,000 hertz range. Interestingly, babies detect a much bigger range of frequencies from about the 20 to 20,000 hertz range. And that range gets smaller and smaller the older we get. So babies hear a much bigger variation and a larger range of sound than adults do, including much higher frequencies. So it's not that there is only a certain amount of sounds that our ears are receiving. They're receiving that entire range of sounds. So as babies, the 20 to 20,000 range, and as we get older, 50 to 10,000 hertz range, 
but that human voice is in that very, very specific range. And so in order for us to communicate and hear each other and hear a voice, a human voice, something needs to happen as these all these different sound waves are an acoustic energy is reaching our ears our ear needs to do something in order to extract the human voice because otherwise it's just streams and streams of sound waves coming in at all these different frequencies and if we didn't have an ability to extract the human voice we it would all just be a jumble it would be very difficult for us to even hear voice particularly since our environments are dominated by many more of these lower frequencies that are are louder also in amplitude than the human voice. So what happens in the mammalian and particularly the human ear is we have that middle ear muscle and that middle ear muscle or those middle ear muscles, they contract as a system in order to extract the human voice. So what these middle ear muscles do is they change basically how the sound reaches the eardrum, the middle ear. So let me first, let's just go into how sound is traveling and then and then we'll talk about that, how, how the middle ear muscle is doing that. So as I speak to somebody else, I am pushing air out of my diaphragm and the air molecules that leave me are going to bump and hit each other, and how fast and how hard they're going to bump against each other is going to depend on how much air I push out, how fast the air I push out, out, and also the different ways I move my mouth, throat muscles, tongue, to create these different vibrations and the way that these molecules hit each other. So as I do that, it creates different sound waves. These create the different frequencies and also amplitude. And As it does that, it reaches another person's ear. And as Steven Pinker notes in his book, Enlightenment Now, the the flesh of the outer ear, so all these ridges and crevices, those are designed to help us figure out if a sound is coming from above, below, in front, or in back. And as it does this, it also channels the sound waves into our middle ear. So where it hits our middle ear, it hits the eardrum first. So it hits the membrane of the eardrum, that vibration, so this acoustic energy, then these sound waves hit the membrane of the eardrum. The vibration from the middle middle eardrum then gets reverberated through the tiniest bones in the body, the ossicles. So these are the middle ear bones, the hammer, anvil, and stirrups. There's other names for them. Those reverberate and they carry the, the that this now mechanical energy to hit another membrane of the oval window which then creates pressure waves through the fluid-filled cochlea. So it turns from acoustic energy to mechanical energy from these middle ear bones to now hydroenergy in the fluid of that, which then get picked up by tiny little hairs, thousands and thousands of tiny little hairs. And there's this basilar membrane that kind of figures out the frequency, if it's low or base frequency, or high frequency, and this then gets translated into a the neural signals for the auditory nerve, which then you know gets processed by the brain. But what's interesting about a lot of research, and I think I mentioned this in the last episode, that many of the books that I pick up on reading and hearing never seem to mention what the middle ear muscles do in all of this. So it's not just that all sounds are go entering the middle, you know, entering the ear, hitting the eardrum, 
And then all of that is getting translated into these different energies. The middle ear muscles are attenuating. They're modifying how the sound hits the eardrum in the first place. So if you picture the eardrum, it's almost like a kettle drum. So there's the skin on top. And these middle ear muscles tighten the skin. So as they tighten the skin, it helps absorb the higher frequencies to get into the the rest of the middle ear and then hit the, the inner ear. When the ear muscles, middle ear muscles are loose and open, it makes the skin on that membrane, the, the skin of the, the drum, much more pliable, which changes how these lower frequencies then reach and makes it harder for the higher frequencies to get translated into these different energies through the middle ear and then to the inner ear. So middle ear muscle tension, once again, is very, very important. And people who can deliberately tense their middle ear muscles, who have learned how to tune in to certain sounds and who have practiced this, they can lower by about 30 decibels the frequencies that are under 500 hertz, meaning that they can very deliberately tune out lower bass frequencies. And the other interesting part of that is they can do that, they can lower the decibels of the bass frequencies, but there is no upper limit to the higher frequencies. So the higher frequencies are continue to be brought in into the middle ear, but they're able to actually tune out these lower frequencies. So obviously being able to tense our middle ear is part of the human communication system. So why would we not be tensing it? Well, there's two aspects to that. There's two reasons. One would be environmental cues. So when there are lots of low-frequency sounds and also monotone low-frequency sounds, so a rumbling of a truck or, you know, in previous times or, well, I guess now too, the roar of a lion, those are more of these bass-frequency monotone sounds. There's not like a a roar that has a lot of prosody and modulation to it. So these low frequency sounds, that would actually trigger um, through this concept of neuroception, which is our, our body's unconscious sensing of environmental cues of threat. So if the environment has these low bass frequency sounds, that can lead our in our middle ear muscles to expand and open up. The other environmental cue can be from social cues from another person, would be a violation of that social engagement system. So if the, that person has flat expression, voice expression, flat facial expression, if they have tension in their muscles or they have a certain smell or posture or gestures, those can also indicate threat. So what those are, are at every moment where our systems are detecting these biological movements in others in order to make an inference about their intention. So as soon as any of those trigger us to our system to sense or perceive that there's a threat, that will also open the middle ear muscles. Because remember, our systems are wired for our survival. If our system is being recruited for defense for some reason, there is no way that our middle ear muscles are going to tense because if we are in a state of vigilance, it means that our system is saying, stay alert, we need to stay alive, that it's going to require us. It's a mechanical trigger that will absolutely mean our middle ear muscles will open up because we will need to be in the mode of detecting threat. So the only way these middle ear muscles can tense is if we are in a state of safety, if we, if we are picking up on environmental features that 
indicate safety. But the other reason why our middle ear muscles may not tense appropriately is for developmental reasons. So I mentioned this a little bit in episode five, that we might have issues from developmentally from in the womb. So a virus or different infections, but also there can be some genetic reasons. Also in our earliest environments, if we have had social deprivation or a lot of toxic stress or adversity, trauma, recurring trauma, any of those things are mean that we have either not developed that vagal tone, so the, the vagus nerve that's going to help tighten those middle ear muscles, or that we have constantly been in a state of threat and not, not safety that has led to the opening of our middle ears constantly to the point where they are not toned. So there are those two reasons. There can be these environmental reasons that our middle ear muscle opens or developmental reasons that our middle ear muscles don't tense appropriately. So what all of that means is it affects us in a variety of ways. Three key areas that how this affects us. The first is that if our middle ear muscles aren't tensing properly and we're not able to detect human voice, because this generally means we're having issues with vagal tone, what that means is that our physical well-being can be affected because it means that our that myelinated vagus nerve is not working properly which means that there may be issues in terms of that vagal ability to lower our heart rate and put the brakes on our heart, as well as be recruited in order for us to go more into our parasympathetic mode, which helps for digestion and lots of other different things for our visceral organs. So there can be physical health issues, but also probably quite obviously social and behavioral and communication issues. So if our middle ear muscle isn't tensing appropriately, this will affect not only our ability to hear voice, but this will also affect our ability to vocalize, create those facial expressions and listen because of this, it means that there's some issues going on with vagal tone in that moment and it is all interconnected. Now, the other piece, and this is particularly important for educators, the other really important part about this middle ear tension is that the this tensing extracts certain frequencies and allows for a bigger variety of these higher frequencies to be actually transduced into signals to our brain. And part of what this is doing is it's allowing us to detect the difference between different sounds, these phonemes, and the frequency of, for example, consonants, different consonants and ends of words. And there's these particular things called the upper formants that are in human voice. And they're, they're, little, they're clusters of frequencies. And these upper formants in particular tend to indicate certain consonants and ends of words. And we need that in order to know that there are these clusters of sounds or these, and these just sounds in general, which are phonemes. So a few examples. There are lower frequency sounds that we produce. So all vowels tend to be lower frequency because they vibrate our vocal folds. So there is more of a vibration in our vowels. So if you touch your vocal folds, and they're called folds because they look more like folds than, rather than cords. If you touch your vocal folds in your throat and you say any vowel, you will 
feel the vibration of that. So A-E-I-O-U. There's a vibration of those vocal folds. They're called voiced. So all vowels have that. So they all have a bit of that vibration already, um, which creates that lower frequency. But a few other consonants, um, so some examples are the sound of the letter B, B, G, which is G, and M, which is M. By doing just those sounds, you can also feel the vibration in your vocal folds. But there are other sounds, other consonants that have these higher frequencies. So from the letter T, which is T, and the letter F, which is F, those have higher frequencies. So the tensing of the middle ear also creates more of that sophistication and nuanced ability to figure out all those different frequencies of those consonants and vowels. That's really important because the biggest predictor of a person's reading ability is their ability to distinguish between phonemes or individual sounds. And that brings us to one of the last sections of this episode, which is how much sound awareness is important for reading. So first of all, reading is not a natural ability. There is no biological area of the brain that is wired for reading. We are wired for communicating and language and even speech, but not reading. Reading is a graphical system and it was invented many, many years ago, and it took so many different forms and and is just a big mishmash of all the different systems that people have put into place to try and figure out how to graphically represent what they're talking about. And the alphabet system in particular is very, very much not natural. It is not a natural way of communicating. The letters don't correspond, especially the way we learn it, don't correspond with the sounds that we make. And so the only reason someone needs this phoneme awareness in terms of being able to distinguish between the sounds is only if they plan to, or they're in an environment where you need to have reading ability, and particularly based on an alphabet. Kids don't need to ever have sound or phoneme awareness in order to speak properly in the sense that they need to have an explicit phoneme awareness. They do need to know that there's sounds being created. So for example, people who have hearing issues or speech problems, they will have a hard time producing speech if they have a hard time hearing it. So there is that aspect. But in terms of learning how to distinguish these phonemes in a very explicit way, that's really only needed if we are learning to read. As Steven Pinker says, Reading is really just an optional accessory and it has to be painstakingly bolted on. So it's just not something we're biologically wired to do. But what we do know is that phoneme awareness is the most important predictor of reading. So there's nothing neurologically wrong in terms of people with dyslexia. They've done over 20 years of research now. And in 20 years of data from brain imaging and EEG, recordings. They have shown conclusively now, and I'm going to take this directly from the book Why Our Children Can't Read by Diane McGinnis, 20 years of brain imaging and EEG data have shown conclusively that people diagnosed dyslexic have no damage whatsoever to any part of their brain. The diagnosis of dyslexia is not a valid diagnosis. There are many other aspects to reading that there is no reading part of the brain. There, it is not a genetic thing. 
We also see that it's not related to IQ. Reading ability is not related to IQ. Children with reading problems, regardless of IQ, score badly on one particular test. And that is the test that measures the ability to distinguish or hear individual phonemes. And if you go to any major research institute that is brings in neuroscience and updated research about reading, they all agree on this point that phoneme awareness, phonology, phoneme awareness, or lack of phoneme awareness is the leading cause of reading problems. So also Haskins Laboratory, which is related to Yale and University of Connecticut. And the issue is that the way we are taught reading doesn't help. So children who are in really, really rich language environments from an early age will naturally learn to read because they are exposed to these graphical representations constantly with high language diversity and language exposure. So the other big predictor of students' ability to read is if they are read to a lot from the very beginning, from being from newborn, zero years of age, up until five years of age. Well, and of course, continuing. So children from those environments, we always believed that, or there was this promotion of the idea that reading is just natural for children. And so they took this whole language approach that is just a natural thing. Just let kids read and they'll eventually, you know, learn it. But we only see some of this natural ability coming from children who are exposed to high levels of reading as they're growing up. But there is some discrepancy in that if there are some of these issues with hearing or the middle ear tension. So they even found, I think it was in 1987, the state of California decided to take this whole language approach where they just gave lots of reading to kids and they just let them try to absorb it by themselves. And what they found was by 1993, three out of four kids were reading below grade level. So it was pretty much a disaster to take on the whole, that whole language approach. A phoneme awareness is much more important, and a lot of educators don't even really understand that. So one thing that it's, is great for educators to know is that there are 43 phonemes in the English language, and that teaching for sound and the sounds that we produce is an important component of trying to learn how to read. For example, the word big has three sounds to it, as a b, a i, and a g. Now, learning the alphabet can kind of screw us up when we learn the letter names. And let's just go back to those frequencies I was just talking about. Remember how I said vowels vibrate, and so they create that lower frequency. And our middle ear muscles are trying to distinguish between all these sounds. If we are learning letters according to these letter names, what we have to do, because we have to open our mouth for it, we have to add a vowel sound. So in order to explain the letter T, and to tell you about the letter T, I have to add a vowel sound. So I have now changed it so that there's the t, the high frequency of the t consonant and the low frequency of the uh, the E, the vowel sound. So I've now just made it so that that child who is trying to distinguish between sounds hears that high frequency and low frequency together. And so it's not a separate sound now. It's not a sound unit. I've put two sounds. I've got a T and an E. There's two different frequencies in that. So it's more helpful for students, especially ones who are not coming from very rich early language environments or 
children who just seem to have issues with reading, there's probably something else going on. And in those cases, it can be more helpful to learn phoneme awareness rather than the more typical way of learning reading. So again, it's not that, remember from episode two, stimulus organism response model. It may not be that this reading, the way that we teach reading is a problem for all students because some of them will be able to read very well. I I was taught in the very typical, I learned the alphabet, I learned sight words, I did all that, um, and I read really, really well. However, if we're seeing that some students are having reading challenges and we continue to teach reading in the same way, we need to ask ourselves, is possibly part of this issue how we're teaching it? And the other question to ask is, can there possibly be a middle ear tension problem? So in the cases where we have these students who are having reading challenges, it might be helpful to try the approach of phoneme awareness and sound awareness. So it would be just the t sound and not T, right? Only one frequency at a time. So I'll list the book to take a look at. And the two that I'm pulling the most from right now are Why Our Children Can't Read by Diane McGinnis, and she even has some ideas on how to teach phoneme awareness, and another book called 30 Million Words by Dana Suskin, University of Chicago, and also I Can Hear You Whisper by Lydia Denworth. So she talks a bit more about the the frequency of sounds. So part of helping children read is going to be that sound awareness, but also remembering that there's that middle ear tension that can be an issue. So what we can do to help people with toning their middle ear muscles, which, remember, can help with physical health, social communication, social behavior, but also reading. To help with that, we can look at a few things. The first is to understand that reading abilities might have something to do with sound awareness, and sound awareness can be affected by two things. The fact that we are not being taught that, and also possibly this middle ear tension So we can bring in phoneme awareness and these sounds more into the classroom because that will help those middle ear muscles tense and tune when we are helping to isolate just these very specific frequencies of the consonants and sounds. And remember, it's not just a vowel. So let's say O-U, and obviously this is where English gets so complicated. O-U can be an O sound in though, but O-U can be an ow sound in about. So it would be more about the ow sound, not talking about O-U, but focusing on the ow sound. So that's just one example of helping students with these sounds more than the letters first. And again, it's not for all, all students, but it can be helpful for some. The second thing that we can do to help with these middle ear, with middle ear tension both to help for reading as well as these social behaviors and physical well-being is the acoustic conditions of a learning environment. So making sure, trying to have as little bass frequency as possible, adding some higher frequency sounds, so some instrumental music without bass, also vocal acoustic music, having social engagement cues as much as possible in the classroom. So having at least a few people, particularly the, the leader, or the teacher having facial expression and prosody of voice. And then lastly, to introduce a few things that can help also with all of this middle ear tension. One is play that I've mentioned in another podcast, which is bringing playfulness, whether it's games or humor. And what that does is that, first of all, triggers the social engagement system because it indicates that 
the that environment is safe. And it also usually introduces prosody because when we are being playful, there's more prosodic voice. We can also introduce music and singing. What they have found in the research is that students who learn music, learn to play music and hear and read music or sing and tune their ears to that, what they find that they have stronger reading abilities. And likely, I don't know if this connection has been made, but I wouldn't be surprised if part of that is because those middle ear muscles are tensing because of all of that modulation and that prosody that's happening and the higher frequencies, which trigger the middle ear muscles to tense. Another thing is to bring in poetry, which they also find helps with reading ability. And again, this may also be because poetry brings in some of that rhythm and prosody. And they find that it helps with sound awareness, especially if you have, because the the ends of the lines of poem might be rhyming. So you've got the similar sounds and then you might have alliteration and things like that. And then lastly, just to have this concept of psychological safety once again. So having a celebration of mistakes as opportunities for growth and self-reflection, noticing microscopic progress, that can also help students, and having an open-mindedness to trying different things to try to help people learn in the best way possible. That the way that we are teaching reading, as one example, might not be the best way for that person to learn, and it might their inability to learn might have nothing to do with IQ, or genetics, or intelligence, it might actually have to do with something like the actual motor movement of their middle ear muscles, and how that relates to sound awareness, which is something that can be learned, and there are interventions that do that. So that was a bit shorter of a episode. I just wanted to go over how important those middle ear muscles are and sound is to us. So quick overview, we looked at just the evolution of sound, that how different reptiles and mammals are in terms of how we pick up sound. We also looked at how sound and voice and language is created through these different acoustic energies and how they get received and translated into mechanical and hydroenergy in the ear, but that the middle ear muscles play a role in modulating and influencing how that energy reaches the ear and gets transduced. And then we also looked at how reading is affected by sound awareness and our teaching of reading and letters can mess that up a little bit, (laughs) and that it doesn't have to do with intelligence or IQ, has to do more with sound awareness, and there's different factors that can relate to that. And then lastly, we just looked at how we can help. So the first is just to understand that people's middle ear muscle tension is going to be related to either environmental cues or developmental issues. And so there's things we can do in a learning environment to help that out. One is to try to actually teach more about sound awareness because that helps tense those middle ear muscles to be aware of the acoustic conditions of a learning environment, making sure there's no as little bass frequency as possible and lots of social engagement to help engage that, that myelinated vagus nerve, those cranial nerves. And then lastly, to introduce a few things such as play, poetry, music, singing, and psychological safety to try to make it so there's the highest chance possible that that myelinated vagus nerve, that cranial nerve, is engaged whenever possible. And that will happen when people feel safe, and that will help with that middle ear tension, which can, as we see, could possibly help with learning to read. So thanks so much for listening to that one. I hope that was helpful, and I hope you'll tune into the next episode. Thanks so much for joining me. 
If you love the brain as much as I do and you want to get some step-by-step strategies on how to teach growth mindset from a neuroscience perspective, as well as handouts, reflection questions, and even pre-packaged presentations to show to staff or students, then check out my Mindset Starter Kit. It's at stephaniefayfrank.com slash training. And on that page, you'll also see my upcoming events, as well as my Institute for Mindset Resilience and Innovation training, the IMRI, which is starting in May. So if that sounds interesting to you, I hope you check it out. Again, it's at stephaniefayfrank.com slash training.